to the extent that is the American Bar Association Business Law Section's podcast series. Our podcasts provide general information. They aren't a substitute for legal advice from a licensed professional. We offer both standalone and serial podcasts on a variety of topics and welcome your feedback and suggestions at ababusinesslaw.americanbar.org. We hope you enjoy your selection. Welcome once again to the Robot Rules Podcast. I'm your host, Ted Claypool, and this podcast is brought to you by the American Bar Association's Business Law Section, primarily uh, in promotion of a book that we've put out recently and that I'm the editor for, which is called The Law of Artificial Intelligence and Smart Machines. And we are talking to various people that wrote chapters in this book, um, and today we're very fortunate to... Uh, uh, have on the line uh, Jennifer Mazel, who is um, a lawyer with Rothwell Fig in uh, Washington, D.C., and who wrote a terrific chapter on artificial intelligence in augmented reality and entertainment. And so, uh, Jennifer, welcome. Thanks, Ted. Happy to be here. Hey, let me start with the first question that we've asked everybody, which is, um, there are so many ways to think about artificial intelligence. How do you define AI? I like to think of it simply as having a machine or a computer system perform tasks that normally require human intelligence. Yep, that makes sense. Um, and you actually are one of the few people we're talking to that does work in this space. So you actually work with artificial intelligence in your day job. What kind of stuff do you do for it? I do. I work with a lot of really neat clients out there that are building AI applications, mostly in the machine learning space, to assist in a variety of tasks from uh, you know, visual recognition, so for example, detecting changes in satellite images over time, to even automating some of the tasks that lawyers do, like contract editing and negotiation. And it, it's just really exciting to learn about the new techniques that are being developed and, you know, the immense amount of data that is being collected and used to train these models and just seeing really spectacular results in a lot of different areas. Do you worry that you're working to put the two of us out of a job? I don't think so. My hope here is that we can leverage AI and machine learning to automate some of the more routine and mundane tasks that we all dread doing so that we can focus our energy and time on the more interesting issues that you know, people want to hear about and, and hire us for. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, and, and we've seen that with analytics really thus far. There's, um, there was a, a era in uh, law practice where everybody had to go look at the books all the time. And now that we have computer databases, um, it has freed lawyers up to actually analyze, pull together more quickly and analyze those cases. Uh, similarly, when you use analytics, you know, it allows you to take a look at, at, at all the stuff you were looking up before, save the client the money for doing that, and actually just offer your expertise. So do you think that that's likely to be 
the way we go with AI as well? I think so. I think it's just going to get better and better if you can fine-tune your practice. And, you know, we love throwing around analytics. You know, the question is, what are we, you know, what's our data set and can we trust it? You know, but assuming that's, you know, that's at stake and, and lines up, I think law firms especially can really leverage analytics. I've even heard of firms that are using internal analytics tools to, you know, better optimize their performance, become more efficient, and, and use that information to deliver better and more efficient services to clients. So I, I see that continuing, and there's a whole growth in the legal services area in AI-based tools that, again, help us do our jobs better and faster. Let me ask you a selfish question. Um, what when you're when you're setting these things up? What kind of um, contract issues are you seeing that are unique to AI? Does it deal with the data sets all the time? And you know, one wrinkle here is you you have to be very careful about what data you're using. And you know, for the companies out there that you know might be scraping the web for data, you have to think about whether they are authorized to access and collect and use that data for purposes of their applications. So you're talking about terms of service issues, potential copyright infringement, and, you know, maybe some other restrictions on how that data is being collected and used. Well, on that, do you think that the recent LinkedIn case um, helps out any? The LinkedIn case, for those of you who, don't, who, who haven't seen it, um, uh, LinkedIn lost a, uh, an attempt to um, keep other people out of its public spaces and from scraping those public spaces. The court said, look, if it's a public space, that somebody has an implied right to scrape information off of it. I think it depends on who you ask. I think for a lot of the analytics companies out there, there's a big sigh of relief, you know, seeing this result. Um, but it still is an uncertain area, and I would point out that internationally we are seeing some divergence in this area as far as whether you can scrape data, especially if that data contains personally identifying information or other sensitive information, even addresses and names. Um, you know, for example, in Europe under the GDPR privacy rules and Whereas other jurisdictions, um, I believe Japan is one of them, um, you know, they're essentially proposing that so long as you're collecting and using data for automated purposes, you know, rather than for analysis and use by humans, you know, go ahead and, and train your models. Um, so we are seeing divergent approaches, but I think the LinkedIn case, you know, it is a stake in the ground in the U.S., and it's going to be interesting to see how it evolves and, and how that changes internationally as well, just given the, the worldwide nature of the, of the Internet. Yeah, no question. Well, and some of what you're saying here is that not only do you have to worry about the um, authorization um, from the site owner, but then that some of the some of the information you may be taking is regulated and restricted in its use just by nature of what it is. Exactly. Uh, that's interesting. Um, and you, I know you, we've talked earlier 
and you said some of what you do in this space is copyright work, which also kind of dovetails into your um, your chapter. What sort of copyright work do you do in AI? Yeah, so a lot of companies out there, they have what I like to call a golden corpus, which is a collection of documents or text that has been carefully curated over time. Uh, for example, imagine media companies that have decades of well-written articles. You know, so there are a lot of applications you can use, you know, again, what I call a golden corpus like that for, you know, whether it's just training an AI model to interpret text or maybe generate text to actually generating news stories. And a lot of clients have questions on how they can best protect those data sets. Because in the U.S., you can't necessarily obtain protection on a collection of facts that you might collect in some database. And, you know, the question is, how do we, how do we protect this information, use it in AI, and, and make money doing that? So, you know, it's kind of an interesting world where we're seeing this explosion of, of data being collected and companies sitting on it and, and figuring out how to put it to use. Well, but data itself is not copyrightable, isn't that right? That's right. So how do you get around that? I mean, so get around that, you know, again, we're talking about keeping it secret, keeping it under wraps, keeping that, collecting that data set. And so trade secrets, in other words. Yeah, almost like a trade secret. And, and when you're doing business with another company involving that data set, you know, putting restrictions in there on use and how you control it and, you know, because, again, it's not clear that copyright law or other intellectual property laws are going to protect that information. Well, that's interesting. Um, you know, how do your clients feel about all this? Are they uh, still excited about jumping in, even if they know that it may not be protectable? I think so. Although the, I will say the privacy regulations have thrown a nice wrinkle into that mix because, a lot of companies for a long time are collecting a lot of information, you know, whether it's internally or externally, and now having to really look under the covers to see what data they actually collected, if it's implicated by these privacy regulations and how to aggregate it or anonymize it or obtain the necessary consent or or other basis to continue using it. So there, there are a lot of interesting questions now just about what you can do with that data. And, you know, it's opening up these conversations with companies that have been collecting data for a long time and maybe sitting on it or thinking about using it and putting, putting that effort into motion to, you know, take a look at what they have, look at their inventory, and come up with a game plan moving forward. That makes sense. Well, hey, in your chapter, you and by the way, we have at least two chapters in the book that that uh, talk about copyright issues in this space and and in uh, AI actually creating things in and of itself that actually runs through several of the chapters. So it's, it's something worth looking at. But in in your chapter, you talk about um, augmented reality and entertainment in this space. We've often been looking. I mean, it seems to 
everybody that's talked about this so far that we're all talking about um, narrow AI rather than general AI. So narrow AI does one or two um, or a group of, of, of specific things relatively well. Um, you know, how does, first of all, talk a little bit about what augmented reality and virtual reality is, and then we'll talk about how to, how AI works into it. Sure. So augmented reality is the practice of taking an existing space and modifying it, either by adding something to it. So, for example, in the famous Pokemon Go game, the creators of that application, they they'd let you look at a real-world space through your, your phone's camera, and they would augment that space by including little monsters called Pokemon into that environment. And on the flip side is there's also these applications called diminished reality, where instead of adding something to an existing environment, you're actually subtracting something from it, uh, which is great for applications where you're trying to design a room or a space and, and you want to explore different options. So that, that's kind of where we are with augmented reality. And then well, can, you, can you go to the room thing for a minute? I mean, how do you, do you, is it set up so that if you're looking through the room with your, your uh, glasses, it eliminates the couch or the end table? How does that work? Yeah, that's exactly right. So again, we're using using AI-based techniques, so image uh, recognition to identify objects and you know interpolate the rest of the room. You know, some of them work better than others. But for example, if you have a couch against a white wall, some of these apps can delete that couch from the image and just fill in that space with the white wall based on the surrounding context. Interesting, um, and and so that's where the AI would come in is is pulling out the image and filling in the space based on context. Exactly. That's interesting. And in entertainment, how is it being used? Is it being used in movies and um, other uh, you know uh, other effects? Yeah, absolutely. And I'd say sports is one of the biggest examples. If any of you have been watching games lately, you see, you know, you'll see the game in action, and sometimes you'll see arrows or or lines or maybe other, you know, other indicators of movement. You know, for example, in a baseball game, if any of you were watching the World Series, um, when a pitch was thrown, there was a box uh, shown by the hitter indicating the area, you know, the strike zone. So. Those are examples of augmented reality in kind of live television feeds. Yeah, and they use they use that in hockey to um, get the make the puck uh, more visible, and they use it in football for the first down markers, um, the yellow line that isn't really on the field, but it's on your television screen. Exactly, and you know, continuing with sports, there I've seen some applications out there related to the Olympics. For example, doing some augmented reality Olympics, you know, promotion where you can have an athlete actually standing in your living room and, and seeing them in action, which, which is really cool. That, how does that work? What do you mean standing in your living room? You have a projector? 
Yeah, so again, you'll be looking through typically your phone or some other device. Oh, okay. And you know, you'll see you'll see an Olympic star there. Interesting. And they're using this for promotion at the moment. Yeah, promotion. You know, connection with the Olympic Games. You know, it'll be exciting to see what they'll do for the next one. But you know, there are some companies out there just dabbling in this. Uh, some newspapers out there have some augmented reality applications. So, for example, they might have an interactive graphic in connection with a news article where you can you can kind of explore, you know, a crime scene and things like that, see the dimensions of it. And, you know, it just helps bring a story to life, and it's really neat to see. Now that is interesting. Um and um, so, so the AI essentially um, helps make uh, live television more interesting. Uh, what does it do uh, in creating uh, things that aren't there that we see on the screen in movies? Do you know? Really, Much in that space? Yeah, I'm a little less familiar with the movie space, but if you ever see, you know, like the computer-generated graphic monsters and things like that. You know, if you ever seen behind the scenes where an actor or actress is standing, you know, in front of a green or blue screen doing yeah, with motion capture technology. Yeah. So those green suits with the uh you know, with the with the little nodes all over them. Yep. Yeah, so using that technology to essentially simulate movement for some kind of monster or fantastical creature you know, that's being shown in a movie, you know, there are a lot of applications out there that leverage that kind of technology. And again, you're using AI in the background there to extrapolate movement, maybe generate expressions for the character, you know, things of that nature. Interesting. And video gaming is, is actually makes more money every year than, than the movies do. And, um, you know, that's another space where this is becoming a, a much more regular uh, thing for AI to um, to be used to put put things into video games. Yeah, absolutely. So using AI to generate movements of characters, generate strategy actions that they might do. You know, in some games, even even generate text and and speech for these characters. You know, so they're almost like autonomous virtual um, characters that you can interact with in a game. Now, you've actually talked about um, regulation in this space and how the law may get into regulating, um, you know, AI and entertainment or augmented reality in a certain way. Um, can you tell the audience a little bit about that? Yeah, so, you know, one thing to keep in mind whenever you think about regulation in, in this kind of space, especially with media, you have to think about the First Amendment, um, which extends very broadly to freedom of expression and creation of content. I think one area that, you know, repeatedly comes up is violence in video games and especially the marketing of such content to minors and having them use these games. And we have some Supreme Court precedent addressing aspects of regulations that try to 
regulate the sale or distribution of such violent video games to minors. And for the, for the most part, they've been struck down. There have also been some, you know, child pornography cases involving simulated child pornography. You know, but it is possible we'll see some more case law com coming out as these games become ever more realistic. You know, maybe if they actually use as input images of real children, you know, things like that. I think, I think there are a lot of open questions out there that, you know, I, I could see being regulated and being of concern to the public. So we'll, we'll have to see what developments happen in that space. Well, and you had you mentioned something earlier about the use of deep fakes. Can you talk about what a deep fake is and how it's how it's used? Yeah, so a deep fake it generally refers to a technique usually using what's called a neural network in in terms of artificial intelligence techniques that takes as input video footage or or sometimes just an image and will alter that image or video to change something about it. So, you know, one common example, unfortunately, is the creation of what we call non-consensual pornography, where, for example, an, an actor or actress's face in a video may be modified to be someone else's face. And the creation of content like that that has been manipulated and changed is called a deep fake. Interesting. And you could, um, it, it is something, I think you told me that there's some interesting statistics on this, because I know people have been very concerned with the use of deep fakes in, like, political advertisements. Yeah, so there's, you know, there's been a lot of concern in, in the legal community, too, when you think about authenticity and how do we know that an image is real, or maybe if a video being shared online has been manipulated or not in connection with an election or... Or in court. Or in court, or, you know, any public figure. You know, there's been a lot of concern there, but I, I, what I found was really interesting is, you know, there is a lot of concern out there, but one uh, cybersecurity company recently did a study, and I, I, I wasn't too surprised by the statistic, but I was surprised at how high it was. They said that 96% of deep fakes that they found online were non-consensual pornography. So we're talking about maybe 4% of deep fakes out there are kind of in this other space, you know, concern about political elections or, or manufacturing evidence for court or, you know, creating some other kind of content. Um, but again, it, a lot of it's non-consensual pornography. Interesting. Well, and the political stuff's been going on forever. I mean, we're talking about it right now with regard to, uh, um, with regard to current political situation, but you know, in, in Stalin's era, if you fell out of favor, not only did they kill you and possibly your family, but then they, he, he put armies of people into erasing you from all the old pictures that were official so that um, there were people that, uh, you know, that, that whose existence was essentially wiped off the, the, the record by the Soviet Union. And, you know, that's something that uh, it's just easier to do. You could do it with still pic pictures then, but you can now do it with videos. 
Yeah, so erasing people, and, and now we can even make them say what we want and make it look somewhat realistic. Um, there was a, there's, there's a great set of videos out from one of the academic institutions showing former President Obama um, giving a fake speech in the sense that they, they gave him a new script to follow and, you know, programmed the video so that his, his facial movements and lip movements would follow the new speech. You could still tell it wasn't quite right, but that technology is just getting better and better. So in addition to erasing people, you can now make them say and do whatever you can imagine. So you can see where people might go with that. Oh, absolutely. Well, it's a it's a it's an amazing area, um, and I've really uh, I've, I was fascinated with uh, your writing about it in the book, and I think people will enjoy that. Um, as we close out, we we generally ask people the same question: what uh, what is it? Uh, what is your favorite depiction of artificial intelligence in the media? What do you what do you like to think about um, when you think of AI's use in movies or books or other things? I actually like the classic HAL from 2001 A Space Odyssey. And what I like about HAL is that there's no, there's no face. It's, it's just the idea and the concept of having an artificial intelligence agent do all these incredible things for you, you know, run your ship, keep, keep the crew alive, keep everything on track, and because of its programming, it, you know, it turned into a homicidal maniac, you know, just depicted by this red glowing light. So I, I think HAL is a great illustration of some of the advancements and benefits that AI can bring to our lives. And, of course, us as lawyers and policymakers and everyone else, you know, we do need to think about, you know, as with any new tool, the dangers as well as the opportunities. So, again, I like I like how a lot. No, that's it's helpful, and it also, as as you say, I mean it it shows us possibilities, both positive and negative. But I think it also how illustrates to people that the that while we call it thinking, and we call and it seems to interact with us like a person, it really isn't thinking. It is functioning in an electronic way that we have programmed it to function. And even when it comes up with its own responses, it's not doing the same thing that we are doing as humans, which turns it into, in this case, somebody that, uh, that, that decides it's better off to, uh, to eliminate the, the humans to keep the mission alive. Yep, I agree. I, I just... You know, whenever I interact with an AI agent, I always have to remind myself, you know, that it, it's a machine. I, I caught my husband the other day with our Alexa referring to it as a she. I said, it's not a she, it's an it. And, you know, just always keeping, you know, yourself grounded when dealing with these new technologies and, you know, rec again, recognizing the opportunities as well as the limitations. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. We really appreciate you taking the time today. Thanks, Todd. It was a pleasure. We've been talking with uh, Jennifer Maisel um, of Rothwell Fig, and she is a writer in the uh, Law of Artificial Intelligence and Smart Machines. And you've been listening to the Robot Rules podcast. I'm Ted Claypool, and thank you very much for listening. 
Thank you for listening to the ABA Business Law Section's podcast series, To the Extent That. The section offers a robust collection of content. To explore more about this topic, or to learn about joining the section, visit ambar.org bizlaw. That's B-I-Z-L-A-W.